Hey, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 today. That's where we're going to look. Uh, we'll get there in just a few minutes. Uh, we're in a series called Choices. And in this series, we're, we're, we're basically talking about choices that we make. And uh, some of them lead to death and some of them lead to life. This series is important because uh, sociologists tell us, in fact, a Columbia University study recent, uh, recently said that we make at least 77 choices every day. Uh, think about it. From the minute you wake up in the morning, uh, you begin to make choices and you don't stop until you go to bed at night. Uh, We make uh, over 70 choices every single day. Some lead us uh, to feeling uh, bound and in captivity and some lead us to feeling joy and freedom and life. And that's what we're doing. Uh, We're kind of taking a look at this section of scripture called the Beatitudes. That's sort of um, the uh, anchor section of scripture when it comes to Jesus' teaching. It's at the beginning of uh, his most famous sermon called called the Sermon on the Mount. We see the Beatitudes in uh, um, um, Matthew chapter 5. And so what we're doing is we're taking these eight Beatitudes that Jesus gives to us uh, in that section of Scripture and we're saying, man, here are eight choices that we need to make in our lives that really bring us life and don't lead us into captivity. Uh, One theologian said it this way. One theologian said that the Beatitudes are actually, when it comes to living life, making choices that lead to life, they're attitudes that we should be. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, Last week, Daniel uh, talked about the the first beatitude. It's this idea of being poor in spirit. And what Daniel talked about was that poor in spirit really means uh, that we make the choice to realize that we don't have within us what it takes to cure the brokenness that's in ourselves. Now today we're going to come to what we're calling the hope choice. It's the second beatitude, but the hope choice can be defined this way. Check it out. It says this, The choice to earnestly uh, believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to change me. We see that in the second beatitude, Matthew chapter 5 verse 4, that says, Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, imagine for just a second being in the audience that day as Jesus preached this Sermon on the Mount and hearing him say, Hey, 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 here's how you be happy. And so he starts saying, he talks about poor in spirit, and then he gets to this uh, more. Here's how you be happy. You have to be the saddest imaginable in order to be happy, right? You want to be happy, find lasting happiness. You actually have to be sad, right? That would have been completely perplexing to you. It doesn't even make sense in our minds. It seems like exactly the opposite of the way we, we try to pursue happiness. It really is. Um, what Jesus is saying here is that there are two ways to happiness, Uh, there's God's way, which we'll get to, and that's what he's talking about here. But the reason it so doesn't make sense in our minds is because we have a way of pursuing happiness. And our way of pursuing happiness is actually the avoidance of sadness, right? That's kind of what we do. We think, man, if I could just, whatever the blank is that we want to fill in, if I could just this, then I won't be sad, I'll be happy, right? And so we think about things like, uh, man, if I could climb the corporate ladder to this level, then I'd be happy. Uh, if I could, maybe not necessarily climb the corporate ladder, but achieve this degree of pay, then I'd be happy. If I could move to this neighborhood and avoid the sadness of this, then I'd be happy. If my kids would just daggum go back to school, then I'd be happy, uh, right? Or, or whatever. Uh, man, 
uh, maybe it's a relationship. If I could just get into this relationship, then I'd be happy. For some of us, it's even things like uh, food. I mean, you think about the whole idea of comfort food is, man, I, I'm in a situation that I'm just feeling stress, and so I run to comfort food to avoid the sadness, the mourning, and make myself happy. Retail therapy is a common phrase that we all know, and it's the same principle, right? Uh, I go shopping because I enjoy it, and I do that to avoid being sad so that I can be happy. Our plan for happiness is the avoidance of sadness. Jesus says, I have a different plan for happiness. But let me kind of go back to avoidance of of, uh, sadness for just a second. To, to really kind of give us commentary on this idea, I want to show you something from a great theologian named Tom Brady. <laughs> All right, check out this video from Tom Brady. Check it out. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game and he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. (laughs) It's what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make. (laughs) But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady has just told us something that we all know and feel in our hearts. See, he, like us, mistakenly believed that whatever that thing is that we fill the blank in with will finally deliver the happiness that we long for and desire. Uh, we're, so, so what that means is we're constantly on the outlook for the quick fix. Man, how can I find happiness? And he's just told us it doesn't Work. He feels it in his heart. You feel it in your heart. Uh, He's just told us what we already know, and it's this. That though I may have a comfortable life, a comfortable life will never comfort my soul. And so this beatitude, Jesus gives us this crazy idea of, man, you want to find lasting comfort and happiness for your soul, you have to mourn. Jesus is against false comforts. And so he says, man, you want to find real comfort, here's how you find it, you mourn. Now, the question is, what in the world does he mean by that? What does he mean by happy are the people who mourn? Now, theologians for centuries have agreed that the Beatitudes are the centerpiece, the anchor of Jesus' teaching. And and actually what they are is they're sort of an executive summary of attitudes that a Christian person would have. A person who's saturated with the gospel would have these eight attitudes as a part of their life. And so all throughout scripture, you see examples of 
those attitudes put into practice. And so uh, examples of them. And so what that means is there are sections of scripture that are kind of commentaries for each beatitude. And one of those places for blessed are those who mourn, the one we're looking at today, uh, one of those places is 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that we're going to take a look at. So let's go ahead and dive in there because what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 1 is he explains what it means to be uh, to, to mourn and be happy through mourning. And what this what Paul's going to do here, really what Jesus is doing is causing us to sh- or calling us to shift our attitude or our understanding of three things. I want to give those to you today. I'd love for you to write them down. They're going to be on the screen. Shift toward three things. Let's read. Verse three, blessed be God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, what Paul has just told us in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 is uh, that, that, that God is Father. Notice he says it twice here. Okay, uh, This is a really important distinction that Paul's trying to make. Now, uh, let me explain to you what I mean by that. Notice what Paul first did not say. He did not say that God is a judge. God is a judge, but he didn't say that here. Because that's not the point he wants us to understand. Uh, he didn't say that God is powerful creator. He is, but that's not his point. He doesn't say that God is ruler. He doesn't say that God is a punisher of sin. He's making an important distinction that God is father. In fact, uh, in the original language and in that day, uh, there was no punctuation. And so if someone wanted to sort of make a, you know, kind of a statement that would have an exclamation point in our day, instead of having an exclamation point, they would just repeat it. Uh, right? And so what Paul's doing here is he's repeating this idea of father because he wants us to understand that God, our God is different than other little G gods or deities of the day. He is a loving father. That's the first shift that this beatitude and Paul's commentary on it calls us to. Number one, we need to see God for who he really is. See God for who he really is. He is a loving father. Now, it wasn't uncommon in that day for people, pagan religions, to see their God as a father. In fact, uh, the Romans saw Zeus as a father in a sense. And they kind of referred to him as a father. And even they even kind of referred to the emperor as sort of a father under that father. Almost a stepfather in a sense, if you will, right? And so uh, it was not uncommon for pagan religions to see their deity as a father, but their father was really kind of viewed as the way they kind of saw that idea was, uh, he was sort of a, um, a strict taskmaster that sort of just had a lightning bolt waiting, waiting on you to mess up so he could throw it at you. You know, it was that kind of idea, like just a strict taskmaster. And so the worldview of other pagan religions is, and was in that day when Paul was writing this, this idea, the degree to which I obey is also the degree to which I am accepted by God. That is the worldview of every other religion. 
if I obey enough, God will accept me. And Paul's point here in saying twice that God is a father is he's making a distinction between that worldview, that idea, and and what we know God to be, a tender, loving father who accepts you no matter what, on your best day and on your worst day. Now, if you're not a Christian person and you're here today and you just go, man, I'm afraid that lightning's going to strike this building by, by be me, me being here today. This should be really good news for you. Because what this says is Christianity is about you being accepted no matter where you came from or what you've done or how bad a day you're having today. God is not Zeus waiting to throw a lightning bolt on you. God is a loving father who accepts you no matter what. And that's why the Bible would continually say things like, God, our God, our father, our, to use a, a word that we see in the Bible, Abba or daddy, uh, is about pull, drawing you up into his lap and saying, man, you are accepted. I love you no matter how well or not well you obey. Why? Because that's what a good daddy does, right? If your family, if you're a parent and your kids were home from school this week, I have a nine-year-old, uh, 13 and 15. Um, and the 13 and 15, I mean, they're pretty well behaved. They're kind of, kind of, you know, becoming a young man and a young woman. Uh, the nine-year-old's still a kid, you know, but when they all get together, chaos can ensue, right? Uh, and you, you have experienced that before. Now, uh, if you're a parent, what you know is no matter if chaos has ensued in your family because of misbehaving children, what you know is what you don't do is say, man, my son, my young son's Brady, Brady, you didn't clean your room even though you were out of school and had all day every day. I don't love you because you didn't do what I said. We, we know that's not what a good loving father does, right? A loving father says, man, Brady, you're accepted no matter what. I'm calling you to clean your room though. I'm calling you to clean your room. But no matter what, I accept you. A good loving father says, man, I, I don't not accept you and not love you because you're disobedient. A good loving father says, you are accepted anyway. And no matter if you like it or not, there is nothing you can do to change it. Nothing. There's nothing you can do to change it. Uh, Paul is calling us to understand who God is, a loving father. And our acceptance is not about what we do our acceptance by God is about what Jesus has already done. See, other, other pagan religions spell acceptance D-O. Christianity spells acceptance D-O-N-E. Right? Let me give you an example. Buddha's last words were, strive without ceasing. In other words, do enough and keep trying and don't stop trying to be accepted. Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. It's not about what you and I do. It's about what Jesus has already done. And Paul is calling us to recognize you and I are adopted as God's very own sons and daughters. And because of that, you are already accepted. You're already accepted. Now, most of you here today know that. Intellectually, you go, I mean, you didn't teach me. Are you really going to teach me something I know? Or are you going to tell me stuff I've known for since I was nine years old? Like, uh, most of you know that intellectually, but the reality is we don't live as though we know that. 
Because we constantly feel guilt when we haven't measured up the way we think we should measure up or the way we think someone else thinks we should measure up, right? We begin to feel guilt. We go, man, God must be disappointed with me. God's not satisfied. I just need to do better. If I could just do my quiet time, if I could just not get distracted and fall asleep when I start to pray, right? Uh, If I could just, if I could just, if I, you know what we're doing? We are acting as though God is not our father who accepts us no matter what. We're acting as though God is like Zeus with a lightning bolt, right? This beatitude is calling us, and Paul is calling us to recognize you have a loving, tender father who accepts you no matter what. We need to see who God really is. That's number one. The second thing that this calls us to, this beatitude and Paul's commentary on it calls us to shift in our understanding of who I really am, who God really is, who I really am. That's number two. I need to see who I really am. Look at the uh, verse four. It says, he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction though uh, uh, through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now, notice what Paul has just done here. He's just, did what he, uh, he's just done what he did in the previous verse. He's repeated something again. He's repeated now the word affliction. Now, if you go on in this section of Scripture, you would see where Paul, again, talk, gives us kind of a laundry list of affliction that he had experienced. And then you go on about three or four chapters later, uh, you see him describe affliction again. All throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is describing the affliction he has been through or is going through. And what what he's trying to point us to, the the point that he's really making is, man, he's saying, I understand maybe more than you, but I want you to understand that this world is full of affliction and there is nothing you can do about it. There is brokenness in this world. And to that brokenness, from that brokenness, there is no escape now, you really talked about this last week with Daniel when, when he was here and he talked about what it means to be poor uh, in spirit. But, but ultimately what Paul's calling us to today is to recognize that the cause of every affliction, to use language we're using in this series, the cause of every hurt, habit, and hang-up is actually and ultimately sin. Now, the reality, though, is sometimes when we think about sin, we, we know what I just said is true. But sometimes when we think about sin, we think about the effect and not the cause. And what Paul's doing here is he's drawing us to fill the cause, not necessarily the effect. Maybe even to allow the effect to lead us to fill the cause. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, My son Connor's 15 now. When he was about four, we were at a restaurant. And um, so imagine, here's the restaurant. Then right outside by the sidewalk, row of parking places. Then the kind of the driveway that cars drive through. Then on the other side, more parking places. See the picture in your mind? So we had gone in the restaurant, eaten. Now we've come out. And Connor remembers, oh, I've forgotten something inside. I don't remember what it was. But I said, okay, buddy, just run in and get it. Come back out. And so Connor runs in and gets whatever the thing was. And he comes back out. And, you know, we had talked like all of you do. Stop and look both ways before you cross the road. And so Connor comes up and he, he stops and he looks both ways. And then he just starts to run. He just takes off running. 
he did what he was supposed to do. But he takes off running. And what he didn't see, but I could see, is there was a car that was speeding around the corner fast. It was a teenager, I think. Connor's coming, car's coming, and the two are about to collide. And Connor would not have won that collision. <laughs> right? And so I see it happening. So I'm going, Connor, stop, stop. I mean, screaming, yelling, Connor, stop, stop. And he kind of put the brakes on right at the moment the car whizzed by. He was a teenager, and I saw him, and I'm yelling at him. And I went over there, and I beat No, I didn't really. I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to. Um, I, I wanted to. But, uh, but so, so I tell you that story. Because I want you to feel the weight of what I felt that moment as, uh, as a father. I want you to feel the weight of what I felt that moment as a father. Now, imagine the scenario is a little bit different here. Imagine that I'm standing with Connor on that side of the street and I'm holding his hand. And I, as a father, saw the car. And I say, Connor, don't run across the street. There's a car. Don't run across the street. And Connor pulls his hand away from mine and he takes off across the street and I don't, I can't stop him. And the car hits Connor and Connor is gone. Now what Connor has just done is he has, he has actually said that he was, uh, he, he was, he was not realizing his need to hold my hand. Now his death in that situation is terrible. But his, his death is only the effect. The cause in that situation is his unwillingness to admit his need to hold my hand. Do you see this picture? Now, often we look at things like rape and murder and atrocities in our lives and in our world. And we look at those things and we go, man, those are terrible. Sin. So, you know, rape, certainly it's those things are terrible. Rape is terrible. Bloodshed is terrible. But those things are all the effect. Underneath all of those things is the cause. And the cause is our hearts saying, I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. I don't want you to tell me how to live my life. We're pulling our hand away from our good father. We're unwilling to admit that we need to hold his hand. And until we're willing to admit that, that this attitude that we all have in our lives is sin, Jesus is saying, and Paul is calling us to recognize, we're not mourning. We're not really mourning. And because we're not really mourning, we will never find real happiness. Let me take this a step further. Uh, years ago, the London Times asked some philosophers and thinkers of the day, What's the biggest problem in our world? What's the cause of the affliction? As Paul, to use Paul's word, what's the cause of the affliction, the brokenness in our world? And he, they were going to write an article and they asked several thinkers of the day, what's your opinion? And most of them were basically the same, but one was different. And it was a guy named G.K. Chesterton, who was a pastor and author in his day. And G.K. Chesterton, to answer that question, simply said this, that perplexed everybody that heard it. G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with the universe is me. The problem with the universe is me. G.K. Chesterton understood who he really was. He was broken. And he had deep inside his heart was an attitude that says, man, I'm going to pull my hand away. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my, my life. I don't need God's hand to hold me. Right? He says, I am the problem. He was broken over uh, his sin. Now, 
Let me go back to Connor for just a second. Connor, my son, um, when he was about the same age as when he ran out in the street, uh, he was about three or four. Um, his friend Isaiah and him and, our, and me and Isaiah's dad were at Pizza Hut. Isaiah's dad was a pastor also at a different church in town. We're all hanging together and just kind of talking. And David was his dad's name. And David and I were talking about ways we're teaching theology to our kids and trying to help our kids understand biblical things. There was a, an older gentleman sitting behind David across from me who heard us. And I could kind of see, you know, he's kind of leaning his ear in a little bit, listening to what we're saying. And um, so eventually this guy just turns around and he says, you guys are great fathers. He had no idea we were pastors or whatever. You guys are great fathers. Then you know what I found? I found myself in this moment where I'm trying to, to, to teach my son theology, thinking, you know what? I am a pretty good father. <laughs> I really am a pretty good father. Then I find myself trying to, to say things louder and more profound, but for a three-year-old, to make him continue to think, wow, man, this guy really is a great father. My point in all this stupidity uh, is that even in my best acts, my best efforts, they're still rooted in sinful uh, foundations, right? It was still rooted in my own desire to make myself awesome, right? Isaiah would say it this way. He says, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even in the good things we do, there's still sin. That's his point. And this beatitude, like last week's also actually, this beatitude, and now Paul's commentary on it, is drawing us to feel the weight of the brokenness in our hearts and admit those areas where we are uh, not trusting the hand that we hold. Right? And until we're willing to say, man... I'm not trusting the hand that I hold, and I'm trying to pull my hand away in these, this area, in this area, in this area, in this area, in this area. We will never find lasting happiness and fulfillment in whatever those areas are, and ultimately in our lives as a whole. Do you see this picture? Man, this, this beatitude is causing us to understand who we are completely broken and mourn over our sin. But here's what Tim Keller said. If you don't read, uh, if you're a reading person and you don't read Tim Keller, you need to. Uh, here's what Tim Keller says. He said about this idea. He says the gospel is this: we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Man, what a powerfully profound thought. And when you let that seep in and saturate your soul, it will change your perspective on who God is and on who you are. Uh, so there's the two things. Who, we need to understand who God is. We need to understand who we are. And the third thing that I want you to see that this commentary on blessed are those who mourn calls us to and draws us to is this. The third thing is to see how God can change me. To see how God can change me. Look at verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Paul is talking about the sufferings of Christ that overflow to us. Bible scholars agree that what Paul's doing here is he's pointing us toward a theological reality known as the great exchange. And he's saying what the cross does, what the cross proves to us is that Jesus takes 
our sin upon himself and he suffers for our sin in exchange for freedom and life, the great exchange, in exchange for freedom and life that is his. He takes the suffering that we should take upon himself so that we can have the life that he deserved. Do you see that? That's the great exchange. Uh, he takes our sin and exchanges it for his righteousness. He takes our suffering, that's the word Paul uses here, and exchanges it for our joy. He takes our mourning and exchanges it for comfort. That is the truth of the gospel. The gospel, the cross, proves that Jesus comforts the person who mourns by making what Christ purchased on the cross yours. Uh, it's interesting in this verse because there's really two realities that we see, a vertical reality and a horizontal reality. What I've just told you about that and the great exchange is the vertical reality. It stirs up, this, Paul's calling us to, to sort of stir up our affection for Jesus in a deeper way vertically if you're already a Christian person. If you're not a Christian person, this is calling you to say, man, all, all you do to, to, to find joy and comfort from your mourning is to bow all of who you are to all of who God is and say, my life is yours and Jesus, in a free gift, gives you his joy and his comfort in exchange for your mourning and your suffering. That's the vertical reality. There's a horizontal reality. Notice what happens. Actually, in verse 4 and here in verse 5, what Paul does is he says, Hey, when you experience that kind of comfort and joy from Jesus, what happens is it naturally overflows onto all the other people around you. Now, I think I've told you this story before when I've been here and, and preached, but I'm going to tell you again just because it works so well for this principle. A few years ago, I was in Bangkok. The church I was serving at the time planted a church in Bangkok, and so I went over there to um, coach some of our, our um, pastors and leaders that we had sent to Bangkok. They introduced me to something, a dessert that I had never had before called mango sticky rice. I don't know if you've ever had a mango sticky rice. Uh, man, it is the most incredible Thai like goodness that I've that I've ever had. It was so good, and I found myself after I had mango sticky rice, looking everywhere on the street vendors at the airport on the way home, looking for mango sticky rice. I get home, uh, tell my wife we got to find mango sticky rice, got to find it. So we actually tried to figure out how to make it. It was no good. We couldn't do it, but we found a place that, that here you know that that has it. And it's really good. So. I went and I told uh, one of the guys that was on staff with me, Eddie, about mango sticky rice. He, you ever had mango sticky rice? Never had mango sticky rice. Man, you got to try mango sticky rice. I mean, it is unbelievable. Mango sticky rice. So we go that day to the Thai restaurant and get mango sticky rice. And he's like, man, mango sticky rice. Wow. That's unbelievable. And so Eddie now, every time, still, that's been like six years ago, maybe longer. Every time Eddie eats mango sticky rice now, he texts me a picture of it. Uh, and man, he loves mango sticky rice. He goes back to the office. There's a guy named Chris. He says, hey, Chris, you ever have mango sticky rice? It's unbelievable. You got to try it. And so now everybody's loving mango sticky rice and experiencing the joy and the comfort of mango sticky rice. See, <laughs> This is, some of you are going, I'm going today to get for lunch, mango sticky rice. 
text me pictures of it or put it on Facebook so I can see it. All right, so this is what Paul's saying here. He said, man, when you experience that kind of comfort, that vertical reality, it naturally translates into a horizontal reality as well. It naturally translate, translates to us helping other people find the joy and the goodness and the comfort that we have experienced. It changes our vertical affection and it also changes our horizontal mission. When we feel the weight of what it means to, to, be, uh, to be blessed and to find comfort through our mourning. Nobody in the Bible um, illustrates this point better than Isaiah. If you've been around church, you know this, this uh, story. Remember in Isaiah 6? When Isaiah saw God for who he was, number one, he saw God for who, the train of his robe filled the temple. Remember that? Isaiah saw God for who he was, and, and then he saw himself for who he was. Remember what Isaiah said? He said, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, I see myself for who I really am. When I've first seen God for who he really is, then I see myself for who I really am. I'm broken. I'm, and like we talked about last week, I have nothing in me to fix the brokenness that's in me. And then he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he would go on to say, God, here I am. I bow all of me before all of you. Vertical reality. Then he goes on to say, not only here I am, but he says, here I am, what? Send me. Horizontal mission. You see it? His vertical affection was stirred up, resulting in his horizontal mission because he recognized how, uh, who God was, who he was, and how God could change him. And it changed everything about Isaiah. Uh, the same could be said outside the Bible of a guy named John Newton. Some of you might even say, man, that's my story. John Newton's a great example of this. You know John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, the great old hymn? John Newton, uh, when he was 11 years old, was uh, somehow brought into the slave trafficking industry. And he began to be sort of a hand on a slave trafficking ship. His career as a child began to grow in the slave trafficking industry until he was the captain of multiple uh, slave human trafficking ships. And he was involved in great atrocities and, and, and terrible uh, abuse on other human beings. For a time, he left the slave trade industry and kind of went into the military and sort of continued that cruel mercenary mentality that he had, but just from a military perspective. Then he left the military, went back to the slave trade. Even his own mother said, who, who was a Christian person, said, man, I, I don't know that God will, that, that John Newton will ever allow God to change him. And his mother began to pray earnestly and diligently until John Newton finally, when he kind of hit rock bottom financially and in his career, he saw God for who he really was. He saw himself for who he really was. He bowed all of him vertical reality before all of who God was. And it resulted in a horizontal mission in his life. That's when, in fact, he wrote the words to that great hymn that we know, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I'm broken. I mourn over my sin. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, John Newton understood what Jesus said when he said, blessed are those who mourn. John Newton said to us in that song, for the first time, 
When I mourned over my sin, I found real lasting joy in life. I found life that I had never had before. What's awesome, though, about this is what John Newton's life illustrates is something that I didn't point out to you in that text. And that is when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. For some of us, we look back on becoming a Christian and it's past tense. And so we think, blessed are those who mourn. Oh, I've done that. I bowed myself before God and now I'm a Christian. I mourned. But Jesus doesn't say, blessed or happy are those who mourned. He says, blessed or happy are those who mourn. And John Newton never got over the reality of how broken he was. Never. His whole life. In fact, at the end of his life, here's what he said. He had forgotten most things. He was sort of struggling with dementia. And here's what he said. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. That is what it means to live a life who mourns and to be comforted and to find lasting hope and joy and peace in Jesus. Happy are those who mourn for they will receive lasting comfort.